So, did you eat anything good? No, I ate four slices of bread with peanut butter for dinner tonight. <laughs> what are you in jail for? Uh, I, I never have a child. <laughs> <laughs> way too late. Here's a life. Here's a life hack for you. <laughs> this is way, way too late. <laughs> if you prefer to eat your meals cooked, don't have children. <laughs> mm. I don't know. I mean, it was it was natural peanut butter. Does that <laughs> does that change anything? I think it makes it worse. <laughs> <laughs> it was natural, smooth. Uh, I think it was Skippy peanut butter. As I was a Jif guy, Skippy lacked the salt that I craved in my, in my uh, peanut butter. Oh, interesting. All right. Yeah. All right, that's a good intro. Let's get right to episode 195. What do you think? In episode four of season two, that's right. we, we start to have some reconciliation between the main characters. <laughs> that's right. Following the, the formula that came before us. You've seen Breaking Bad. You know how this stuff works. Yeah, yeah. We're we're mixing the blue, <laughs> the blue goods right now. All right, episode. Yeah, that's right. Season two, episode four, one ninety five. If you're counting from the very beginning of the Ruby on Rails podcast, I'm Sean. That's Kyle. Let's get to it. It's Sunday night, eight forty five. We've got lots of good stuff to talk about. Uh, you kick off, sir. Yeah, so this week was interesting for me, and I actually have, a, I think, a good topic here. So this week I've been working on two projects simultaneously, one sort of revamping an existing system and one uh, implementing a, a, brand new, um, a brand new thing. And so what I kind of started to realize is um, as things like Ember and Angular and uh, Go uh, sort of you know, come into vogue a lot more. I realized that I don't actually write any rails. Like I write <laughs> no. a very low percentage of rails day to day now. now we got to pause. So what category do Ember, Angular and Go all fit into? Well, no. So, I mean, if you, if you started in rails, right. Uh, or, or if, if that was your, if your, you identified as a Rails developer, whatever that phrase means. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, you know, I feel like there's several languages and JavaScript frameworks, like CoffeeScript, right? Like, I feel like if you look at the cross-section between the Rails community and the JavaScript community, like, CoffeeScript would be, you know, all the people in Rails who needed to use JavaScript, right? right. I feel like it was a very important uh, connection there. And I feel like things like Ember especially have gotten off on such a good footing because a lot of people in the Rails community went, oh, geez, this is solving a lot of the problems that I have. I'll use Rails and Ember and move along. And then people in Go were like, or people using Go were like, oh, I've been writing Rails at this time, but I want, you know, real concurrency and, right. uh, you know, closer to native performance. And Go feels like Rails sort of, kind of. And so let's move over there. And so I, like, sort of sat back and I was kind of laughing to myself because, you know, I do write Rails, like, you know, GitHub is a Rails app, um, but most of the code that I work in actually doesn't use any of the juice that Rails gives you. Um, you know, some of it uses Active Record, but even that is still pretty fleeting. And so um, I was kind of curious from your perspective or just, you know, the general ecosystem, you know, as Rails has matured, it's kind of lost a lot of its, um, uh, you know, 
what am I trying to say? Like overly unique to the framework features, you know, like a lot of it has become uh, genericized or pulled out or a lot of the complication has gone away. And so I feel like it's a lot closer to Ruby anyway, but I mean, for example, the, the main thing I work on at GitHub is, uh, you know, the API and that is basically just Sinatra and sure we pull some stuff from rails, basically just active record, but at the end of the day, I mean, I'm basically using Active Record as my framework of choice, and the rest of it is just straight up Ruby. Um, and I wonder if that's like a sign of, uh, you know, a good framework that it's kind of, you know, changed a bit, or you know, is it just where I'm at, you know, professionally that I'm actually writing less Rails? But I mean, I can't remember the last time that I actually like wrote an MVC Rails app end to end, you know. Using all the the cool things that Rails gives you for free. Yeah, I I, I think this is a good topic, and I, it's uh, apropos things that I'm working on also. So, because I was thinking about the same same exact topic today when working on something, I assume we'll talk about later. But so let me take you through what I was thinking about related to this. So I, I was building a new app, and this is a new app, not even an old app. So I don't think that your point was necessarily specific to maintaining an old app, right? I mean, even with a new right. thing, this tends to be true. Right, right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I was making, I was working on something new today. Uh, and um, like if I was to divide up my time, so there was s- some Rails, although the first thing I did after Rails New, because I literally typed Rails New on this thing today, was I stripped out all of the rendering everything from the project. Right? So I like Interesting. T- took out from the gem file, you know, everything from the, whatever. Is the Ruby Racer still the whatever is the JavaScript interpreter that's right now included in the gem file plus jQuery plus, you know, uh, SAS or I think SAS is in there. So all of the front end centric stuff I took out and then I modified my, you know, production.rb and, and my application JS and, you know, all the things that I think the dash dash API flag would give you once it's, it's up and running in rails five. So I did that. So to your point, I stripped some things out. Then I add all the things that aren't Rails in that I use, which is like a decent list. So it's JSON API resources as, you know, sort of the the drop-in configurable kind of replacement for writing your own controllers and serializers, which is a huge part of what Rails um, did, you know, back when I was writing sort of uh, server-rendered Rails apps. So I drop that in. I put RSpec in, which is a huge part of the time that I spend in Rails is in the, the test suite. And really, RSpec is sort of its own thing. Um, you know, it's not even the default integrated bit with, with Rails. So I did that. Mm-hmm. And I put in, you know, I don't use fixtures. I use Factory Girl. You know, whether or not people like that's another story. But uh, so I put that in. And uh, uh, Rails doesn't come with, or I think it comes to some extent with a way to document your internal API, but not your external API. And, and that's a big focus of what I've been working on. So I drop in RSpec API, API documentation. I think that's the name of the gem, plus mm-hmm. a helper gem related to that. And, you know, so I was doing all these things and it's become somewhat second nature because I do all these, but I, I had the same moment you just mentioned, which is I looked at it and said, geez, like, most of what I'm using is this like collection, this, this, uh, you know, constellation of relate of things that are related to rails, but aren't rails. And I actually take out a bunch of the things that are rails defaults, not because I've got something against them, just because that's sort of how things have gone. 
Yeah, no, no, totally. And I mean, I, I feel like now, you know, most of my work is done in like the crazy lib, you know, sock drawer <laughs> where, you know, all this uh, random code goes in in the last mile is just served by, you know, Sinatra or Rails or whatever it is, which I think I think is not a bad thing. Um, but, I, I, you know, it's definitely something that I've been wondering if, you know, it could just be the class of app that I'm working on or the problems I'm trying to solve. And there are people who are running Rails new and taking it, you know, soup to nuts and, and using everything that comes for free and just going to town. But um, I think, like I said, I think as things have matured and things, you know, have become uh, less Rails-centric, you know, where Rails had to come with everything you needed to do everything that a web app needed to do, um, that I think it's promoted an ecosystem that's allowed us to think, you know, outside the box and add a gem or add a, you know, I guess an engine or something, which is Rails-specific but is a bit more modular. Um, I think it's, I mean, I think you asked the question, is it good or not, which I think is an interesting question. I think it's good to me as a user of rails. You know, I, I think that there are some people that have worked on rails that may feel differently, you know, like it, it demotes rails to some sort of, you know, infrastructure place that, it, that it doesn't represent all that rails could be. I, I feel like that, that feeling may be around, but I don't feel it. Yeah. And I mean, like at the same time though, is that bad? <laughs> you know, I feel like, at the same time, Rails Rails big thing was just come over here and write your applications and have a blog in five minutes because it has all the things you need to do, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that we're coming down off that high, <laughs> at least publicly. I think privately we have been for a while, but I feel like publicly the community is kind of like, all right, yeah, I use Rails to actually back my, you know, Scala service. You know, uh, which is like pretty funny to me, but at the same time, I had a conversation this weekend uh, with a good friend who is, you know, looking to do something along those lines. And so, you know, it's, uh, I think it's great. And I think that, I don't know, have you seen um, Lotus RB? Uh, like, I, I'm familiar with what it is, but no, I have not taken a look. In yeah. So, I mean, I, I poked around with some of its earlier versions. Lotus RB is uh, a sort of new. Uh, a web framework for Ruby, you know, it's like, it's still MVC, but it's super thin. Um, so, uh, I feel like Sinatra was basically just like, you can have a Ruby web server and these, this is the way you can do it with these methods. Whereas Lotus is really trying to say, all right, if I were to build rails today with just the minimum viable pieces that you need to, you know, make this happen, that would be this project. Um, and so, I, I think it's I think it's really intriguing. When I used it, it was like a little too confusing, I think. But it's it's barely what I think like point four right now. But um, I think that especially as we start to go more API heavy, um, where like your entire application is an API with some JavaScript, HTML, and CSS on top, which isn't right for every application, but seems to be the the you know new way of the world. Um, I think a project like this could go a long way to. Instead of say start Rails and then remove everything, um, if if there's enough interest that people are willing to learn new things and not just remove the things that they've already learned, I think Lotus could be a really interesting sort of way forward for the Ruby community. So I'm going to pitch you why I'm not interested in it. Because <laughs> I, I, it's not that I'm not interested in things that aren't Rails, because that's not true. 
but I'm not interested in a Ruby framework that's not Rails. Because I feel like if I was to go for another framework, which I think is totally possible, um, I think it would be because I was uh, trading off of Ruby's weaknesses in, or strengths into something else's strengths. And, you know, whatever Lotus does is not going to un, sort of undo the core limitations of Ruby, um, which I think is it, it, that that's the entire reason I would trade. So like when someone makes the case for Phoenix and Elixir, I, I get it. Or even, even, um, uh, express and, and node. I mean, I think that the pitch for those two is not bad and it, and it's about concurrency, which is a big deal you know, and, and long running connections with the client and, you know, using your server resources efficiently. And that's not a pitch for the frameworks. That's a pitch for the, the, the language, right? The underlying infrastructure that the framework's working on. And, um, you know, for that reason, I think it, it, it's hard for me to believe that the Delta between rails and Lotus would be so high that I'd be like, Oh, you know what? I, it's worth it to switch to that instead of just switching to a, you know, a, a framework that's built on a language built for concurrency, which I think is a bit more compelling. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 I agree. And I think that's the struggle that all of these projects are having, you know, that are trying to say, you know, fix rails. Um, so, you know, here's a web framework that is everything we wanted rails to be, but rails is so old and crufty and, you know, bigger than it needs to be. Like that argument is being solved by these projects. But I think the problem is just like you said, I mean, fundamentally, we all know that rails is big and crufty and, you know, and has too many things, but we know it and we can remove the things that we don't want. And if that's good enough, then we're done. You know, it's pretty modular. I mean, I think. I mean, one of the great strengths of Rails is the change that happened, I don't know, four or five years ago to make things more modular. And it's really enabled the current day, right? Where you can take out what you don't want and replace it with what you do. And people that are super familiar with the details of the project would come up with a million examples of how it's not modular enough and how you're still, you know, wedded to some, you know, lousy thing from the past. It's too slow. But I think that, I think that that's a case of familiarity, you know, breeding contempt, more than sure. a careful analysis of sort of the situation. That's my guess. And, and again, I think, uh, you know, the, the fastest possible implementation of a server framework in Ruby would still get destroyed by languages that are lower level, you know, and there's no, like, in other words, you can't, you can't make Ruby what it isn't. And, uh, sure. and I love Ruby. I'm just saying like, it's, it's, it's not, uh, it's going to lose against some other languages if you start worrying about performance significantly. Um, which gets back to, I think, something interesting that I was thinking about when you were talking through sort of, you know, that you don't feel like you work in Rails that much. I mean, I think a great example of how true that is, is think about how much of the work that I bet you do and definitely that I've done is asynced into background jobs. Like a, <laughs> like a huge yeah. amount that I do is asynced. Like anything I can possibly async is asynced. And I mean, it's not until now that that's even part of the Rails framework. And it came so late that I don't know if you've ever used Active Job, but I haven't because I got so used to using Sidekick as you know, sort of a first class part of my stack. And not begrudgingly, like I didn't even mind that it wasn't really supported by Rails because like it was fine. Um, you know, there was no need for it even to be supported right. by rails. 
I didn't think, but it's a good example of like something so fundamental to what it's like to be a Rails programmer, not even being contemplated by the framework until recently. And now that it is, it doesn't matter. Um, is that your deal? Are you asyncing many things? Um, sort of. I mean, y- yes and no. I think that the 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 uh, a lot of the work that I do with hooks all goes, you know, async, and uh, but a lot of the work with the API is primarily, you know, synchronous. Um, but I, but I think the 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 truth of the matter is, you know, we've solved this one problem with Rails rather well, which is I would like to be able to hear that a user wants content with this type. And I would like to respond to that content with the same type and render it using templates in here we go. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And the Rubyness allows you to go, all right, well, sure, you can do all those things, but now I want to be able to overwrite this this one action or rewrite this one method or add this class and have it, you know, do this nasty thing with inheritance or whatever. Like I feel like that's the Ruby part of the Rails framework. Uh, but at the end of the day, Rails can do a bunch of other things that have been either contemplated or since added, like, you know, with active job, you know, doing background jobs a bit more, uh, you know, first class. But at the same time, like, we've all already hacked around those things if you've been in the community long enough. And so I think it's interesting as Rails continues to mature, who has a stronger voice in it, right? All these new features and functionalities uh, that are coming to Rails or have or have come to Rails aren't probably not needed for the largest projects because they're already utilizing their own homegrown thing or something that was a lot older um, that's probably not Rails-specific just because of, you know, it, its uh, origin. Uh, but how many people, with the exception of consultancies, are starting new Rails projects, you know, multiple times a year? Like, I know I'm not, for sure. Um, there might be side projects, but I feel like those projects never get big enough to hit the scale problems that require you to really think through your system. Right. And so then you're just writing Ruby, you know, you're, you're, you're using the rails framework, which is fine, but you're just basically writing Ruby. And so I'm curious, I'm curious to see as things go on, if, if it's really just going down to optimization and, you know, trying to keep up with larger web technology, you know, um, or if the new people coming to rails, running all these new, you know, running Rails new frequently, um, if they're getting a larger say and maybe pushing the framework in a direction that is a lot different than, you know, sort of the old guard. Because I don't know that I felt that that shift has happened yet. Um, and it may never, you know, it might always be sort of pushed along by the old guard. But I think that's probably true now. I mean, who knows what it'll be in the future. Although, I'll do, I'll take a crack at a little bit of prognostication on the next five years. So here's what I think is going to happen. If you'll indulge me on that, on that point. Indubitably. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So here's what I feel in my world. And and I, I think that I'm not, maybe I'm a little bit at, maybe I'm seeing some things a little bit before, um, the average rails programmer seeing them. But I, I think that my experience isn't different than theirs will be. So the excitement that I used to feel about rails and I mean, I, I still like Rails. just rails is easy now. Like it's, I, I know how to do all the things that I want to do with rails and I seldom am like left wanting like, Oh, I damn it. I wish rails did X. Like I, I'm struggling with other things, but that's not one of them. Um, uh, but the excitement that I used to feel about rails and how easy it made certain things, I now feel about a couple of other things. So JSON API resources being one of the big ones. Uh, 
because it allows you to take a Rails app and define a, a JSON API sort of compliant server on top of it that'll respect the entire specification for how every endpoint should behave and what you know what it should respond to in terms of you know, filtering and sorting and pagination and um, uh, side loading and sparse field sets and you know all the things that JSON API requires, which is a hefty list of things. Um, so it makes it wicked easy to do that and uh, do it in a way that sort of builds on top of Rails. You, know, you kind of get it for free almost. Um, and then that, once you have that bridge from Rails into JSON API, then that makes a bunch of other stuff completely awesome and easy, like rigging up an Ember app super easily, or, um, well, use the Go example. There's a pretty good Go uh, library that I haven't used yet, but that's a client of um, JSON API that you could use to build a you know, service that was you know, more uh, high performant on a particular area. But anyways, what I think is going to happen is that as servers become JSON API compliant, then uh, I will start becoming interested in learning a second framework um, like Phoenix, as an example, for when either an existing application or uh, sort of has the needs performance-wise that Phoenix would solve, or a new application, which I know is going to have those needs sprout, you know, pops up, then I can, you know, as soon as there's a JSON API resources equivalent in those frameworks, or in maybe I'll, I'll help importing it, then the switch over will be super easy because the interface out of the application is identical either way. Right then, whether it's Rails or Phoenix or Express or Lotus or whatever, it doesn't really matter because they are all, once it hits the outside world, identical which is their JSON API compliant servers. And I think that that is going to create an interesting world, you know, where how you got there is doesn't really matter because it's all commoditized at the, the API. Um, and I'm excited about that. I think that that's a good place. Um, I think it's a really good place actually. Then, then what is this rails thing all, all been about then? <laughs> at that point i'm just teasing <laughs> well I, yeah right i mean i think that it's a good question in that it, it, it i think we're definitely sailing towards a which matters more sort of developer happiness or performance like i mean we've been sailing towards that sort of conflict for a while and uh it's an interesting question right so like how will Rails get slower or faster? How will Ruby get slower or faster? How will the hardware get slower or faster? How will the alternatives, you know, relative to those things change? And, you know, at some point, the developer happiness is, is not worth it, right? It's worth it to be less happy and build stuff that is more interesting. And I think that that, that, that sort of tension between developer, developer happiness and, and performance is is a very interesting one. It's already interesting. And I think it's getting more interesting over time. Yeah. There was an interesting article that was coming out, I think through Harvard business, uh, about like, does happiness actually matter? <laughs> Which is like a really interesting, uh, thing to say aloud, especially coming from GitHub, <laughs> not from GitHub, but as a GitHub employee, uh, where it was basically like, does a happy developer actually do better work? 
Who is it specifically about developers or is it about something more work, general? Work employees. Employees. Everything is always employees. Re- re- resources. Resources, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I mean, and as one of those resources, I it was basically just saying, like, you know, if you are happy, maybe that's not actually the goal and happiness is really hard to measure, you know? And I feel like a lot of the languages that have been maturing lately are, don't make me unhappy, which I think is probably good enough. Um, especially given the whole performance, uh, you know, side of things, but yeah, I'm, I'm there. I think that there's a, whereas Ruby kind of scratches the, um, what do you call this? So there's the, the side of the coin where more is better, like more happiness makes me more happy. And then there's the other side, which is to say that as long as it's not worse than a given level, I'm fine. I think that they call it hygiene factors versus, exciters since we're getting all Harvard business school in this conversation. So I'm with you that, that happiness and programming is a hygiene factor at this point to me, not an exciter. In other words, like as long as I can tolerate it, I'll tolerate it. Right. And it's like why I'm kind of okay with JavaScript now. Like, you know, it's, it's all right. Especially with some of the, the, uh, well, combination of the frameworks plus ESX. I think when you combine those two things together, then and really, even if you didn't have ES6, I think the frameworks have largely sort of added in things that were missing previously. Frameworks and libraries. So yeah, it's a, it's a good, it's a good set of questions, and uh, you know, pretty easy, I think, to be dispassionate about. To be honest, like Rails, Rails has been great. I think still is great, and it'll respond. So as the world starts caring more about performance, and if it cared a little bit less about happiness, then you know, Rails will have a choice. Does it sort of firmly plant its flag in the, well, we're the happy place for the people that care about happiness? Um, or does it start to trade off a little bit and, 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 uh, you know, look at, uh, I I heard static typing was coming in Ruby three. So I'm just saying, (laughs) well, that is sort of Matt's focus right now, right? I'm just saying, well, concurrency is his focus. And nothing says happiness like being statically typed. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know if you've done any of the Go. Like, uh, yeah, a little bit. It's uh, it's not the end of the world. I don't no, think. No, it's uh, it's like duckly static. It's uh, like Daffy Duck static. Typed. I mean, I mean, it's static. Oh no, it is static. You can't you can't change it as you go. <laughs> but it also knows like its inputs types, which is which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Well, I think that the, I think the way that I'd say it is that it, it's nicer to type than Java, but just as static. But okay. the nicer to type is a big deal. Yeah. Um, I mean, type like not like static dynamic type. I mean, like hit keys on keyboard type. All right. Well, boy, that was a listen to us at nine o'clock at night, jumping right into it. Get out of the way, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, geez, it's five o'clock somewhere because we are. <laughs> All right, let, let me do our first uh, our first sponsor. Um, which one goes best with what we were just talking about? CodeShip, DigitalOcean, or Linda? Those are the three sponsors for today. Um, Linda. All right. This episode is brought to you by lynda.com, the online learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you strengthen your business, technology, and creative skills. For a free 10-day trial, visit lynda.com slash ruby on rails. Uh, here are some courses that they've recommended. Um, 
RSpec testing framework with Ruby, Code Clinic Ruby, Ruby Essential Training, and localization for developers. Those are either Ruby specific or um, topics related to programming that would be helpful for Ruby developers that you may want to take a look at. And what I'd recommend is taking a look at courses that are unrelated to Ruby and possibly even programming to brush up on things that you are uh, not quite as good at as you are programming. An example for me that I've uh, done recently is on design, how to uh, do a better job of mocking up a uh, an interface. And I, I found uh, quite a bit of help on doing that and also photo editing, both of which I'm not that good at and have to do occasionally. So whether you're trying to get much better at something you know pretty well or uh, learning something that's not a core skill set just to uh, brush up either professionally or personally, lynda.com can help you out. So your lynda.com membership will give you unlimited access to training on hundreds of topics, all for a single flat rate. Uh, Whether you're looking to become an expert or just passionate about a hobby, uh, check out lynda.com slash what was it? Ruby on Rails. Lynda.com slash Ruby on Rails and sign up for your free 10-day trial today. Thanks to them for sponsoring. All right. Onward to our next topic. Speaking out about 5 o'clock somewhere, mm-hmm. totally, this is totally off topic, but possibly relevant to some of our listeners. Have you tried this new, possibly regionally... Uh, regionally popular beer root beer no i mean i saw the article that made its way around twitter but i have not tried it yeah so is this a regional thing or is this just a u.s thing or is this something that we stole we appropriated i don't know i mean i didn't even read the full article so so you're that you're that intrigued by this <laughs> this new product that well give the article that said root beer in it <laughs> yeah I, I i guess that the I saw. I, I went as far as seeing like the picture on the on the article and didn't scroll down. Uh, I mean, I think maybe because I'm not the biggest beer drinker. But okay, tell me, have you tried it? So yeah, so I I I, I desperately tried to find it and I couldn't. And I found this other uh, brand, um, and I'm just gonna name them because I think it's important to our listeners. I tried the Coney Island brand uh, of <laughs> okay. uh, root beer beer. Uh, not good. I did not like it. If you like licorice, I couldn't tell if there was a strong liquor flavor or a licorice flavor to it. But either way, it was it, it was not good. And so then I found the real one, which is not your father's root beer beer. <laughs> All right. And that one is good. Is it like a malt liquor or is it a, a brewed beer? It's, like what is it? So the so the Coney Island definitely tastes like a malt liquor beverage. The like the, Zima, like Zima. <laughs> um, you know, it's got it's like it's got this it's got that weird like liquor bite to it that like a Smirnoff would have, you know. <laughs> yeah. But like, though, not your father's root beer. I I think is actually beer. Okay. And but and it's, and it's pretty good. Tell. And, and good. I mean, it's sweet. It tastes like a root beer. <laughs> it tastes like an A and W root beer. Like what so, percentage like that and what percentage like a, like a, I don't know, a, a Budweiser, you know, name, name. I mean, some, it's like maybe yeah. 90% root beer, 95% root beer. My wife who does not drink beer like at all, I gave her one and she said that was delicious. Yeah. It's really not, 
It's not selling me. I think that's no, the no, no. I it shouldn't do. sell you. I mean, this is something. This is this is like I don't know, coffee script, where you're like, no, 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 I definitely want that, or no, that just the sound of that hurts me. And so this is something where if you've always wondered, like, man, I should go find that root beer beer. I'm telling you, do it and get the not your father's root beer. If you're the type of person that heard about the root beer beer and you know immediately <laughs> said to themselves, that sounds horrible. So then if, if like I, me, I, not, this will not change your mind, Sean, if, at, at all. If on Twitter you saw it linked to 50 times and then even clicked through one, saw the picture and didn't scroll, just skip over it. That's what you're saying. Totally. Okay. Totally. Totally. All right. I'm, I'm going to skip over it then. I'm going to take your word for it. Not being bad, but not, not my thing. All right. Should I go with our second topic for the day? Please. All right. So I think we're both interested in this one. So earlier this week, I was and yesterday also, I was working with the Fancy Hands API. So good. Uh, have you used the API? So I haven't used the API, but I, I feel like I feel like you should plug the service. Yeah, I have used the service. And I mean, so like, like jury's out for me right now on how this whole experience is going to be, but um, it's it's either going it's going to go one one of the two interesting directions. Either it's going to be fantastic and I'm going to be totally bragging up next week how, how much of a home run I hit with this effort. Or it's going to like really not go well and it'll be interesting how it doesn't go well. But let, let me give like an overview of what it is. So, well, you've used Fancy Hands as like a personal service. So why don't you, why don't you give a quick overview of how you've used Fancy Hands for your, like your personal life. And then I'll tell you about what I'm using the API for. Sure. So Fancy Hands is actually like a consumer product that they have turned into an API. But basically what it is, is it's what it's, you know, it was super classy or cliche, depending on how you think of it, like to talk about virtual assistants for a really long time. And what Fancy Hands does is you pay a certain number of dollars per month to get access to a number of requests. And those requests can be done over email, uh, over a phone, like voicemail system, or over text in real time. And you're basically just asking them to do things for you, things that you know they can do remotely, like... Um, I've used it a lot to say, hey, can you find a dinner reservation at this location anytime in the next two weeks? Because it's a really popular restaurant. Or can you find me a hotel in Austin, Texas that has a pool, room service, and a spa or something like that? Or uh, whatever. It has to be something that's remote. They do a great job of looking up things on Amazon for you, um, you know, making Excel spreadsheets, anything that doesn't require them to physically touch something. Um, and so I've used them for, I think, about maybe two years now. Um, and they're uh, a quality of life thing that is uh, pretty cool if you have a lot of things going on and you have enough tasks that you don't physically have to do. I hope their next feature is like come to your house and fix the, you know, squeaky sliding door. The <laughs> fact, I would like that. <laughs> <laughs> but since they don't have that yet, I'll deal with them telling me what I mask to buy on Amazon. <laughs> so a couple other, a couple other details and we'll get back to the eye mask comment later, but, uh, it's three to six bucks per request. And a request is like basically something that would take 15 minutes or less. I think is the way to think about it. Yeah. Um, okay. That was a good explanation and you've been pretty happy with them, right? Yeah. I mean, and I, I will, I will give an, a little bit of an asterisk that I am, I was one of their first customers. And so I'm on some grandfathered plan that they don't offer anymore. And so it's possible that I wouldn't be as happy if I had to pay full tilt, but, uh, overall, um, 
they're really good, really good company that responds to you know your concerns uh, very quickly. So if you, like I said, if you if you do have any tasks that you can think of, because I feel like that's the hardest thing, which sounds really. Uh, I don't know, elitist or stupid to say, you know, if you, if you can't find anything to have someone else do for you, then what are you going to use a service for? But if there's enough stuff in your life that would be good to, you know, offload, then it's definitely worth the 30 bucks or whatever it is a month. And certainly if you're, I mean, some number of people that are listening are, you know, have jobs where they have tasks that would make more sense to have someone else do. And I think it's relatively popular for companies to give this to their teams now, which I think makes all the sense in the world. I mean, if you're paying someone, you know, 50 bucks an hour, the idea that you'd rather offload tasks to, to something that's going to cost you the equivalent of, you know, 12, 15 an hour seems to make sense. Right. Okay. So let's get to the, uh, sort of why are we talking about this in this show? So they also have an API. And interestingly, it's not totally clear to me which one came first, the ser- like the service that you know now for consumers or the API. I think the API has existed for a long time, but I don't think it ever really became super popular. Um, and I, maybe I'm, I've got that wrong, but that's, that's my impression from reading through the documents. I think they might have had the API running for a very long time, you know, uh, internally. Um, okay. Yeah. But I don't think they've been offering it publicly for a while, at least. Gotcha. Okay, so so the API allows you to do two things. It, it, it basically just gives you a, a way to create the uh, request that Kyle mentioned. So either, um, you know, some free form, can you research XYZ for me and do the following, um, which I think is interesting. Um, but it also allows you to script telephone calls. In other words, you can use it as an on-demand, you can use Fancy Hands Assistance as on-demand call center employees as long as you can script the call, you know, which is the same thing you have to do with most call centers anyhow. So for example, if you had, I'll tell you what I'm doing. So um, we have to, uh, I'm working with someone that has to call sort of thousands of their suppliers to get from them updates on a prof on their profile so that they can buy from them more smartly, um, give or take. So, uh, but making those phone calls is obviously difficult if you don't have a staff that's sort of set up to make thousands of phone calls in a few days. So instead of having employees do it, we have been working on defining the script for how to call a supplier and then creating a fancy hands, um, you know, fancy hands script that, um, that does that. And, uh, it's been a very interesting experience. So here are some things I learned. I'm really bad at writing call center scripts, like awful. (laughs) Like, I mean like comically bad. So here's what I did. I created this script and I read it. I'm like, okay, this is pretty good. This is similar to what I'd say if I was on the phone and, and I, you know, read it out loud and, you know, simulated both sides and was feeling pretty good about myself. And then I, I created the script in this language and we'll get back to like what that language is in a, in a second. Cause I think it's interesting, but you kind of define how the conversation should go and then post the request to their API. And then I made myself the supplier, right? So then I get the phone call and I don't tell them that I'm actually the person making the service. I just see what it feels like. Oh my God. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> uh, so it turns so out bad in what way? Cause I, I feel like my problem would be that I would make it like too artificially personal, you know? Like so a lot of cues. <laughs> yeah. I think that that part the, the, 
the being polite actually works fine. Being verbose does not. And by verbose, I mean, if the, uh, fancy hands, um, you know, contractor, if, if the person that's making the call on their behalf has to say more than, I'm going to say eight to 10 words before pausing and either asking for something or just asking for acknowledgement and some sort of, you know, I don't know, grunt. It, it's, re- it's really bad. So, you know, like I, I had, you know, two second or two sentence, 30 word preambles to some things. And by, you know, word 11, I just wanted to scratch my ears out. It was so uncomfortable, right? Cause, cause you, you kind of want as the person that they're talking to, you want to say something, but you know, they're in a script. And if you say something like uh, it just sort of everything trips up. So what I learned is that you have to write the whole script in very short sentence segments where you pause after every one of them to, you know, give the conversation a second to have a meaningless exchange. Like, okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Sure. And those, those sort of meaningless grunts in between from the person that's receiving the call is the thing that allows it to not feel awful. You know, whereas if you sort of skip right by those, even though you're not asking for anything, it just, it just doesn't work at all. Just, it doesn't, it's not conversational. So version three, which is where I am now is not bad. It's actually, I think pretty okay. Um, but it's a, it's a fa- super fascinating experience to go through, to, to write, to try to sort of take a conversation and reduce it down into, um, you know, something that someone that knows nothing, that has no context can be the person talking and still be okay at. Oh, so what's this? This is in some sort of like weird XML format, right? It's just no, it's just JSON, and it's it's, oh, okay. it's poorly documented. Um, so I'll, I'll give them kind of like not great marks on that. But once you piece together what the requirements are for it, which there's you can do relatively easily because they've got this um, they've got this they call it the API Explorer where you can like modify scripts and then hit a button to see what JSON they produce and you can get to all of the options that way. So it's not that hard to, to back into what the format requirements are once you've you know, figured out how to get there. But yeah, it's, it's not that bad. So basically you, you post a call request and it has this conversation object in it and the conversation object declares how the conversation should go. It's basically a, a set of, named scripts. So it's like an array of, or a hash of scripts. They all are, uh, keyed by ID. And then each of them has a series of steps, like things that you can say. And each of those steps has a type, like, you know, is this a yes, no question? Is this a s- multiple choice? Is it a multi-select checkbox? Is it, you know, nothing, it's just a thing to say, and then you wait and then you continue. Or is it a, is it a, a logic step where you give choices which are links to other scripts in the in the object, and then you know basically you can bounce around that whole you know that whole conversation object until you get to the end, and you can take many different paths to get oh, okay. there. Okay, that makes sense. Um. So anyways, real interesting. Like I think uh, I, I think for like I think it's going to work. I think the that my first day with it was a little bouncy. Uh, I think that a lot of that was self-induced, but not all of it. Um, and, uh, you know, the price is pretty good. It's only 34 cents a minute for a call. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Right. 
That's not bad. Because, see, like, I've had this idea for a while in, uh, like, every startup person ever um, about... <laughs> Uber Uber for what? <laughs> basically is what I'm about to tell you. <laughs> um, I basically... It's not Uber, but I want, I want to more easily map um, uh, reservations in suburban locations that don't have online reservation systems. So I basically want to be able to like make a reservation to a restaurant without having to use fancy hands or like mate or like be able to call restaurants to see like how late they're open if they deliver like that sort of thing because I feel like where I live and I don't know if it's true where you live Sean but there's because it's so suburban a lot of the cool you know tools like Foursquare or whatever don't always have accurate information and a lot of the places that I have like the delivery options or like reservations like I have to call, which isn't a big deal or anything. But when you want to say like, okay, I want to go here at nine, but if they don't have a reservation, I would rather go here at, you know, nine and then you know, sort of like that sort of thing, um, which I find myself doing a fair amount because like I might find that someone could watch uh, my son at the last minute. And so we want to go out and we want to make a reservation, but it's the same day, that sort of thing. And so it'd be really interesting to use this because I feel like it would cost me probably 35 cents per call because the calls would be so short to just say, hey, you know, can I have a reservation at this time? No. Okay, great. Thank you. Goodbye. And you can update like a, you know, a sort of crowdsourced open table. Um, oh, it'd be so in like, that'd be so easy to write. Right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And because I feel like this is like, these are the cool APIs. Like, that's why I really love Twilio, their like telephony API. Mm -hmm. And this is, I think, even cooler because it's just, it's it's allowing you to do something physical. Well, it's basically, I mean, it basically is that, I mean, literally is the Twilio API because you can tell from the recordings if you, if you, select that you want the call record recorded, then you, you can get the audio and the audio is the Twilio recordings. It must all be built on Twilio. And, I mean, it's sort of the Twilio API with a person that makes the call, like bundled right. in. Okay. It. Um, and yeah, I, th- I think I think that, that that could you could do that. And I I agree, is a super fun API, right? Because it like it it, uh, it allows you to coordinate like the work of people in a very in a very uh, mechanical turkey kind of and, way. Yeah, and do, does does Fancy Hands API allow you to receive text messages as part of a conversation? Well, I know they can. I know you could do that in the consumer product, and so that's why I was wondering. You so so no, not not directly. I think okay. is the answer. Although the they've got a, um, a webhook deal on the on the request that'll post back to wherever you want with the results, and you could you know have that text you um, have okay. have your own app that was doing it text you sure. Um. But I don't think that you can say, um, you can't say like at this step, text me. What you can do is say at this step, transfer the call to this number, which I think is oh, that's a neat. super cool feature. Absolutely. Like that's very useful. Um, so now I'm wondering if I can't just finally make my holding corporation where you never actually talk to a human, but there's a very, like another, a human that actually works for me, but it'll just be me in a very, uh, in-depth conversation scripts sponsored by fancy hands. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking for accounts. I'm looking for accounts payable. Please hold. <laughs> <laughs> so we, I thought we had a pretty fun idea for how to use fancy hands for an art project. In our... uh, I, so, so when you messaged that to me, Sean, that has been my dream for like two years to work on a project that did that. So Whether should we, was... okay, let's make a, let's make a game time decision right now. Yeah. We could talk about it. 
or we could just do it and post the art project. Oh, uh, we should just do it. Okay. We should talk about it. Let's just do it and we'll do little videotape confessions while we're building it about how, you know, yeah. bad we feel about this, but then we'll be artists at the end and so it won't matter. Right. Okay, then then let's just say that Fancy Hands API can be used for for uh, off-label things. Entertainment purposes. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. <laughs> this, these are not indicated. Uh, these uses. <laughs> so yeah, we will do that separately. All right. Well, I will report back next week. I'm going to be using it all this week. I'll make probably a thousand calls through the API. That's awesome. Um, uh, when, when you unleash the hound, so to speak with, you know, sort of, uh, API that generates all this human work, uh, <laughs> all sorts of things happen. <laughs> like, so I, I will, I'm sure that I will have some interesting stories about the good and the bad. I'm going to record at least maybe a quarter of the conversations, especially the early ones, which uh, is pretty entertaining too. You know, it, it like plays a little notice before the call that says this call will be recorded, but then you just have the recording. And it's pretty helpful to get a feeling for what's going wrong with the calls or what's going I, right. I would really like to receive one of these test calls now. I'm just going to say that aloud. Oh, I'll, well, I'll have... Okay, you'll get called tomorrow. Just let me know what I'm supposed to say <laughs> if it's not apparent in the in the script. But it, 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 I, I'm really curious to see what it's like to be on the receiving end of the service. Okay, then you'll get called and you don't need to know anything. Like, you'll know, you'll know what it is right away. Um, but just, you know, fake your answers and then we'll talk about it next week. Okay. All right. Uh, let's catch up and do our second sponsor. So we've got two left. We've got CodeShip and DigitalOcean. I think CodeShip fits more with that fancy hands conversation. Do you think so? Sure. (laughs) Sure. Whatever. Sure. Why not? (laughs) Uh, you know, and, and speaking of CodeShip before I get into the, the ad read, I've been thinking lately about back to the original conversation we had, how much more of my time in thinking now than say a couple of years ago goes into like the workflow of how code gets from sort of development test to stage to production. Maybe it's just the, I don't know if it's the maturity of the apps that I'm working on or the maturity of me. I suspect it's the latter one more, but like, like how much I am using CodeShip specifically, but tools like CodeShip more generally as like a key part of my infrastructure and, you know, back to the Israel's everything you need, or is it just sort of a cog in a bigger wheel? And, um, it's interesting to think about how like CI was not a big focus of mine a few years ago. And now it seems completely indispensable. Um, I, I would imagine at GitHub, it's been a big thing the whole way. At least since I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I doubt it was in the very, very beginning, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so let's talk about CodeShip. So CodeShip is a hosted continuous delivery service that's focused on speed, security, and customizability. You can set up your CI server on CodeShip in a matter of seconds and automatically deploy when your tests have passed. Uh, CodeShip supports your GitHub and Bitbucket boo projects. It's really uncomfortable you've made me boo every time I say Bitbucket. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I never said that ever. <laughs> no, that's that's not true. <laughs> CodeShip supports your GitHub and Bitbucket projects. You can get started with CodeShip's free plan today. Visit CodeShip.com slash 5x5Ruby. Again, 5x5Ruby is the code. 
And if you get a paid plan, you'll get 20% off for three months. Again, 5 by 5 Ruby is the code. Thanks to CodeShip for sponsoring the, uh, the podcast. All right. All right. We've done two topics, two good topics, I think. Your turn. Um, so one of the things that, uh, I know we both kind of have an interesting, uh, experience with, but you mentioned this, I think a couple of weeks ago, but I find it to be super relevant on every project. How much time do you think you spend on the readme, uh, mm. any project you work on? Well, so I'll, I'll answer in two ways. So I spend it fess up, Sean. <laughs> I spend a decent amount of time on it. I think is 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 one way of saying it. But my guilt around this is that I don't think that I spend a consistent enough time every day. Say so, it tends to be a little bursty. Like I'll take five hours and like you know conquer the current version of the readme and like redo sections and fix it up and edit it for mistakes and missing bits and all that jazz. And then like, I'll go three weeks and not touch it and then go, Oh shoot. You know, I added, I added features that I, you know, I didn't keep in sync with the readme or I added a part to the, the infrastructure of the project and I didn't mention it or I swapped out a service for this one or whatever, you know, and, uh, didn't keep up to date on it. So I'm a little hot and cold with it, but I find it really important. Like I, I, I think it's, it's so important. And, and I mean, if you include the API documentation as part of the readme, which I think I would here, um, then I'd say I've actually gotten quite a bit better because I've been very focused on making great API documentation this year. Like, and I'm working on a project right now that has a big API and it's the the first project that I did JSON uh, API 101. So I've, I like I had it ready for RC2 and RC3 and RC4 and then 1.0. And I hadn't sort of documented it in a really nice sort of consumer-friendly way until JSON API hit 1.0. And then I documented the entire thing with help from someone else. And uh, the, the reception from the consumer, the people that are using it has been so great. It's really like put wind in my sails to do a better job. So that's a long way to say, like, I find it really important. I'm a little inconsistent on the readme itself. I've gotten better on the API documentation. Uh, I think, uh, I could do even more and I'd feel even better about it. What about you? Well, I mean, one of the things that I've been finding a little bit of is, I mean, there are open source projects, right? And they have readmes and, and a lot of them are really excellent. Um, a lot of them are not, um, I still come across projects that are uh, private, you know, when people are like, hey, can you look at this and help me figure this thing out or whatever, where um, it's a team of, I don't know, five, ten, you know, two developers, and the readme is like the Rails readme. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> no. It, you know, because I guess the assumption is like, oh, well, you know, it's internal, so we know how to start this thing or whatever, you know. Um and so they never actually say anything inside of them. <laughs> uh, and that, that still kind of uh, boggles my mind, even on like a, for personally, because of GitHub's like strong readme culture and um, shared like scripts uh, culture that we have where, you know, every 
project shares the same type of scripts that do whatever they need to do in the language that you're working in. So like script slash server is still how you start a server, you know, oh, okay, sure. script slash CI build is how you would start the build that's specific for the CI server that you're using. Um, and every project has those same scripts regardless of language, which is really powerful. That's um, a smart idea. Yeah, and it, it's on the GitHub engineering blog. Um, there's an article about that that uh, John Maddox wrote. But it's uh, it's it, that was one of like I feel like the secret sauces that I I caught from GitHub. Um, it just makes your life so much easier because every project that you use internally has that common language. And so there's a lot. It's like what's well, whole like one half of a readme that you don't need to worry about anymore, right? Like how do you start this thing up? You just run script slash bootstrap. And it's going to do everything you need to get the system running, including like bundle and whatnot. Um, and so that's pretty cool. But when you go to a lot of the open source projects, you know, some of them um, don't have that step in it. You know, like, how do I start this thing? And uh, the argument is sometimes, oh, well, it's Ruby or, oh, it's Node. You just it's just run, you know, this one command that obviously does everything you need to get things going. But that's usually rarely the case. And so it's been really interesting to me, uh, primarily privately. Open source is a kind of a different beast, but still has problems. But privately, I wonder how many, you know, how many people's readmes inside their company's main project are basically like, you know, this is, you know, Project X and Godspeed. I think it's probably highly correlated with what kind of async versus sync communication culture you have. So like... I think the places I'm thinking about my own experience here, like when I work with teams that rely substantially on asynchronous communication, right? Like, so email, even Slack to some degree, GitHub issues and pull requests, you know, teams where the, the people are in different locations and different time zones and whatever. Um, the documentation culture tends to be pretty good for the obvious reasons that like, uh, you know, how else is someone going to learn things because there's not these like, you know, forced meetings where everyone has to sit in the same room and talk about it. And the places where the documentation gets the, the shakiest is where the, the, uh, you know, it, people are co-located and, you know, there are meetings and standups. And then the artifacts that sort of, uh, async teamwork depend on aren't there because you don't have async teamwork. That's my, like, that's my poor man's, uh, uh, you know, guess for how you could, uh, you know, approximate whether someone would, would have that kind of culture or not. You think that's mm -hmm. right? I don't know. I, I, I sort of feel like it's, it's more highly correlated to turnover. Like, like not, not, not necessarily how quickly people are fired, <laughs> Uh, from the project or team, but more so how often do people come in, contribute and leave, you know, which is like the open source problem. Um, yeah, sure. I feel like if you work at a company that's big enough where a developer on a separate project may come in and do something and leave, it's really important that that person's time's not wasted. Right. Whereas I feel like it's easy for us to write off like, Oh, well they're getting started on this new project. So I'm sure it's going to take two days to get the thing running, but then, but then they'll be good. Right. But if you if you optimize for the like drop in use case, then it's a lot easier. And there's a lot uh, there should be documentation there. And then every time somebody drops in, they update the documentation, and no one has to like bite that big bullet. But I feel like when it's a project that's long running with a singular team that adds people every time that new person comes on, it's oh well, just sit down with you know uh, Sue or, or or Joe and and 
we'll, they'll walk you through how to do it and then don't worry about it anymore. One of these days we're going to write this documentation. I feel like that's a bigger, a bigger thing. You yeah, know? I think that that's right. I think they're probably both true. I mean, oh, so, sure, sure. so the project that I was, um, mentioning that has the large API that's JSON uh, API one Oh compliant. So I added someone, um, earlier this summer that, that joined on and has been helping on the server side. And, um, the maybe two days before he started, I took a look at the readme and it like, wasn't bad actually, but it, uh, I tried to imagine if I was him coming in completely cold to the project. I mean, he's an excellent programmer, um, great at Ruby and, and rails, but completely new to the project and completely new to the domain, like a hundred percent new. Um, so I said, okay, if I'm him, what would I need to know? And I was interested in, in the gaps. So a lot of the gaps were domain centric. Like what are the nouns in this project? Like what, what the heck do they mean? Sure. And so I wrote like a, it's a transportation project cause that's mostly what I work on. And I wrote, I don't know, maybe a, a thousand word glossary of all of the, of the, you know, the jargon that's, that's involved in all of the, the concepts and, um, and filled that out and then d- did, you know, various other cleanup bits that, that tried to answer the question, like, how could I prevent a phone call? And because I, I sort of figured that'd be a measure of success that, that if you could just rely on this documentation and get up and running and have intelligent questions from the beginning without a phone call, then, you know, you would have done well and succeeded. We never had a phone call. Uh, you know, actually true story. So we're into week seven, I think is this week of, since he's come on the project, he's worked every day. He's done amazing work. Like I couldn't be happier with the collaboration. It's been a complete pleasure on my side. I think it's been pretty good on his too. We've never talked. Oh, wow. Yeah. Never once. I mean, we talk every day tech, you know, typing, yeah, wise, yeah, yeah. Yeah. but never talked on the phone or by video conference or any other way. Hmm. Yeah. And I kind of like, either that means that I'm weird, which is, um, it's possible. That's true. Or it means that, you know, this documentation push worked or maybe both. Yeah. Now, do you find yourself consistent? Do you think that you, if you were to audit all the projects that you start and lead, do you sort of build readmes to the same degree of quality on all of them, or or do you think it varies? Um, I mean, I think it varies. I think that I'm um, I'm always reminded every time I do a task on a project where at the end of it it was either sh- it was like stressful and by at, at all I go. Am I the only one that knew how to do that? <laughs> right. um, and if right. the answer is yes, then I usually spend an hour or two updating readmes and like documentation. A lot of our projects have a readme that links to a docs folder that has like more in-depth information in it about how or what or why we did this thing this way. Um, and so I think that I like again I learned that in the GitHub culture more than I did separately. You know, when I was consulting, it, that was a whole different beast because your role has planned obsolescence in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, you know, if you're doing a good job, you, you should be hopefully working in such a way that when you're done, the team that has to keep running it, uh, or the team that will take it over is, is ready to hit the ground. And so that's like one way to solve a problem. Cause you're, you're able to make a lot of assumptions, I think, um, about, you know, 
what who who you're working with or what's going to happen next. But I feel like on a project that is at a company that um, you know things can change mildly rapidly, and people can join projects and leave projects, and it's not a whole team coming in at once. It's uh, a little bit more difficult uh, to do. But I think that having a culture that appreciates it makes it a lot easier to make you feel like you're not wasting time taking you know the hour or two hours or 30 minutes whatever it is to sit down and you know actually have a readme that's in markdown god willing and you know can actually look good and clear for everyone to use right so in a on a future episode we should talk about the i think the the cousin of readmes which is api error messages um <laughs> totally because i think that that's uh they're definitely related and I don't know that I'd have the same success story in that neighborhood though. I'm trying, uh, but let's, let's save that for a different week. Okay. So let's do our last sponsor and then I've got a, a last topic. Um, so digital oceans, our third sponsor for today, as you know, DigitalOcean provides simple and fast cloud hosting built for developers. You can create your cloud server on DigitalOcean in 55 seconds. I haven't tested that. Do you think that that's the sort of thing that if we tested it, it would be 55 seconds, or do you think they just yeah. like how it sounds? No, I think so. I mean, I've done it before, and I know it's been less than a minute, so... I've never timed it. It seemed quick. Um, and for as little as 5 bucks a month, so 55 seconds, 5 bucks a month. Um, 400,000 developers, uh, including me, and it sounds like Kyle, have used DigitalOcean. Uh, it's highly scalable to meet the demands of a rapidly growing application or business. You can even resize your existing droplets to meet uh, your needs as they grow. You can choose your uh, operating system from all of the uh, usual suspects. And then they have one-click installs for apps like Django and Rails and and uh, GitLab and LAMP and, and MediaWiki, etc. All the servers are built on hex core machines with dedicated ECC RAM and RAID SSD storage. You know, this is one of those ads where I should put my glasses on because there are way more abbreviations. Than my beard is super itchy right now. The other ones. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> servers can have 20 CPUs, 64 gigabytes of RAM, and 640 gigabytes of um, SSD hard drive space. You can pick your region to deploy in. You can manage your DNS. They have auto backups and snapshots. Uh, again, all that 55 seconds later, you've got your server up and running. Last thing to mention, they've got a, a really active community that documents tutorials and, and articles on system administration. It's one of the best things about DigitalOcean. I've used it a lot. I recommend you take a look if you're uh, going to go and uh, try them out. So go over to DigitalOcean.com to learn more. And when you sign up, if you use the code Ruby podcast, again, Ruby podcast, you get 20, that's not true. <laughs> you get 10 bucks credit. <laughs> so $10, not well, 10 from digital ocean and 10 from Sean. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, you get $10 credit. So just 10 bucks, not 10%, $10 towards your new account. Uh, from what they said before, that's, uh, that's two months on their uh, smallest plan. So Thanks to DigitalOcean for supporting the show. That's actually true. I really had to put on my glasses. I can't I can't see more than about twelve inches from my face, and my laptop is about twenty-two right now, so there we go. Alright. Last topic. So let's talk about this API first training and make a decision. Am I gonna pull the trigger on this? I think so. 
All right, so I tweeted out, well, let's, let's rewind a little bit uh, from there. So over the last hmm, maybe three months, I've talked a lot about API-first development and my you know semi-obsession with a spec like JSON API and specifically JSON API and then JSON API resources and then, you know, uh, using the sort of strategy that Kyle actually talked about earlier about, about focusing on the, the API as the sort of the, the input and output from your rails app. And then that gets consumed, not just by Ember. I mean, I know I talk about Ember as the, the web framework that I like, but you know, Ember or, um, third-party integrations or scripts or, you know, for ETL in and out or, you know, all the different clients that you have for, for an app. And anyway, so I've been talking about that for a while and people are always interested in it. So I've gotten tons and tons of comments during that time period uh, where people ask things like, you know, how should you, how should I get going or what's the best way to transition? And the question's come from different people. Sometimes it's more experienced Rails developers that feel like maybe what got them here isn't going to get them there, that kind of thing. And sometimes it's newer people that feel like this is the way to go, but their uh, books and training courses and schooling didn't aren't, aren't teaching them how to do this. And sometimes it's people from the front end that you know, aren't that confident in the server side in the first place. And then once in a while, I'd say it's also managers or other people that aren't programming all the time, but are trying to push their teams in the right direction and sort of buy the intellectual argument, but aren't sure how to lead about how to go this way. So anyway, so I've heard from all those people and I asked Kyle the other day, well, uh, I wonder if, I wonder if I should put together a, a like a seminar about this because I'm interested in the topic and I know it pretty well now and I think I could do a good job. So anyways, I, I previewed to you a little, the overview of what I think I'm thinking about doing. So give me some coaching. Do you think the world would would want this? Yeah, I think it does. See, here's the thing with this with this topic. Is this topic is one of those topics where it's sort of like root beer beer. <laughs> oh no. This is this is <laughs> no, no, no. This is not sounding good. No, 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 no. no. It's a, it's a, it's a poor, poorly timed joke. So <laughs> No, but what 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 I think it is is that people get people get really interested in this because they work on a project all day that is you know usually html and css based and uh, I mean, not everyone but a lot of people that have re- are working on older projects right and it's 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 a hard sell to go to their boss and say um, hi i would like to move to ember api first like let's just you know kind of look at our model and see how we can build an actual api and then just consume that instead right because that's like a whole, you know, ball of wax. And so what I think is interesting about this training is, is that it's a great cheap way, um, in comparison to like a multi month long endeavor to go, okay, I want to learn how to do this. And so I can actively know if this is something that I can apply to my day to day. And if I can, then it's a great way for my company to help me, um, you know, research and formulate what could be a good plan for us to, you know, adopt this method. Um, and so, I mean, APIs aren't going anywhere. Um, and so at the very least making, making your app consume an API that is of the same, you know, company. So IE microservice, I think is an easy win. And then, you know, if you have used another JavaScript framework or haven't, or, you know, 
I haven't seriously used a JavaScript framework except to kind of like toy around. And so it's intriguing to me from that angle too of, okay, well, maybe I know how to build an API, but what does it mean to build an API that's really the only interface to my application and not some, you know, half public, half all backdoor, right. uh, you know, method, which is kind of how most, I feel like a lot of APIs are built in general. Uh, but if you kind of take that off the table, then there's a whole different, uh, you know, thought process around it, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because, I mean, if every client's a first-class client, not the web client, you know, the original right. web client's the first-class client, everything else is sort of, like, using some demon child of it as its API with a bunch of hacks on top, which is most of them that I've built that weren't API first. And I think, I think are, you know, based on all the ones that I've used, it seems like they're, you know, that's the common deal. And I think you're right. I think your description of that it's it's a kind of easy, low risk way to give a shot at an approach, so that you can say, okay, I've done this, and I kind of I kind of get what that path is. Because I think it's a, a somewhat difficult topic to just read an article about because it's quite integrated. Like, you know, you have to in order to get a feel for it, you've got to, you know, you've got to do some server work and do some architecting work and do some. Um, development work related to that and then build a client or two or three and then do the DevOps work to say, geez, is it really rougher to deploy these two apps that then talk to each other? And what about security? And like, you know, there are all these things that are kind of tangentially related, but all important. And a lot of those tangents are the things that get people really anxious. Um, Like security is one that gets people anxious. And the short answer is it's actually not hard. Um, you know, you get to build on the shoulders of other people that have done the hard stuff, but, but actually implementing it, given those tools, isn't that hard, but it feels hard. And I think a lot of the topics are like that. So yeah, I think, I think this is something to do. So I wrote, I, I wrote a little tweet. I figured we'd decide on this, uh, episode if this, <laughs> if we should do it. So I'm going to, I'm going to hit publish on this tweet if we decide yes. I don't know where my tweet is though be helpful. Okay. So here's the tweet that I, <laughs> how do you get to drafts and tweet, but <laughs> hold on. I got to put my glasses on again. Oh, geez. Do, do you use tweet? This podcast is also sponsored by bifocals. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. By the way. Um, so use yeah, well, uh, apparently I don't know how to, uh, I don't know how to find the drafts because I know I wrote it and I can't. Like new tweet, and then there's a little gear. Oh, there you go. I see. Okay. So here's the tweet that I wrote. Learn API-first development strategies with Ruby on Rails, JSON API, and Ember from me! Exclamation point. Online. <laughs> <laughs> online, September 16th to 18th. Please retweet. Uh, API-first.training. That's the uh, little URL I made for it. Should I tweet? Yeah, I would. I would have it just be all buzzwords, though. <laughs> Pretty close. I mean, there's a, there's a little bit of filler in there. I would be like, uh, you know, what can we say for learn? That's more, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, learns to sort of pedestrian of a word. I agree. <laughs> Do. <laughs> that's, that seems really in the class of our, you know, make make exactly. is the. Yeah. All right. Like Ember plus JSON API plus Rails. <laughs> now. Right. Do uh, it. Growth Make hack. Make your dreams come true. <laughs> Gro- growth hack your synergies. 
Yeah, and then link to that Shia LaBeouf uh, YouTube video, <laughs> and then and then just watch watch the students line up. Exactly. All right, I'm I'm tweeting this. What the hell? Tweeted. Well, that'll be fun. I'm looking forward to it. So, uh, the the application that I'm writing that I'm going to write for it, I just started. Um, is a uh, a blackjack server. Good idea or the best idea? I thought it was the best idea. <laughs> well, well, good. Well, seriously, I think the reason I think it's good is that it's a great example of uh, something where everyone will immediately see the need for many different types of clients. Right? Like, so you could just have the web app where everyone goes and plays blackjack. That would work fine. But, like, every every nerd wants to write a bot that plays the blackjack instead of the person, right? Like, that then can impl- right. implement its own strategies or be the jerk at the table that bets like a clown, that kind of thing. That's me. Right. I am, I am that bot. <laughs> On purpose or just because, you know? Just because I, I, I enjoy gambling and I enjoy going and I'll play blackjack and I only really ever sit down at blackjack if I can sit at that last seat where I can't really screw over a lot of people, but I can still ruin the game for everyone. Oh, they get mad either way. <laughs> and so I'll just be there and I'll be like, oh, uh, a 16? Sure, why not? You know, or whatever. 16 and, against a four, hit it. Yeah, exactly. And then just watch watch the dealer blackjacks roll in. So yeah, you know what I'll do to help out then? I will make the troll bot that consumes the API. Yeah. Right? Yeah, well, this is like one of the... so. wouldn't go. Uh, yep. And, and, and uh, you know, you can have your bot sort of sit at a table in one of the spots and then have whatever strategy it wants. And the other people, you know, including the human players that are playing, will have to deal with Kyle's GoBot. I love it. It's fun. It's, I love this idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's a really good app. And, and of course, then I wasted like two and a half hours today figuring out how I would model um, suit and rank. <laughs> because apparently that was a good use of time. Yeah. Hey, at least it's not a blog. Right? Right? Yeah, I think I think it's fun. Actually, I went on a long walk uh, yesterday with Teresa, um, my wife, and, and uh, we were uh, chit-chatting about this, and, and uh, she ended up being the one that liked Blackjack and pushing me towards it. So, credit to her. Awesome. That'll be kind of fun. I like to write games. I haven't written too many, but I've written, I've written a handful. And, uh, if I were one of these, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, and I think that I think that they're much more entertaining to write than anything else. If, if I were some sort of developer, and this <laughs> this intrigued me, where would I go to learn more about this training? Oh, oh yeah, okay. So go to apifirst.training. And Sean assures me that's a real domain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I am. I I I cannot confirm that i'm not the first person to buy a dot training domain but <laughs> somewhere someone somewhere is like we just made ten dollars <laughs> that's right they, they they paid you know uh hundred and fifty thousand dollars last year to get their tld and they finally got a customer almost home folks almost home <laughs> if we get one of these every 10 minutes <clears throat> <laughs> yep so api first dot training and uh, this is, so the, the quick uh, details about it are uh, 16th to the 18th. I asked of September uh, of September. Yeah. I asked online about it a few days ago. I got a lot of responses. So people were interested in this, which got me off my butt to put the details together. 
And I'd say nine out of 10 said that they wanted it to be online. So we'll see, uh, we'll see if that ends up being true, but that was definitely the stated preference. So it's online and, uh, uh, for three days and the format will be a few hours of, uh, you know, two to three hours of let's call it lecture time where we, you know, teach a topic and then two or three hours of application time where you take that topic and then go implement it. The application will be totally built in advance. So you can just sort of tinker with an existing application or a part of an application, you know, part of it and, uh, fork it and modify it if you like. Um, or if you just wanted to focus on the client side and do just, you know, moderate tinkering on the server side, you can just use the server that's set up and work on the client or vice versa. If you just wanted to fiddle with the server side and then rely on the people that like to build clients to build the clients, then that's fine too. Or if you want to be Kyle and build the troll bot only, um, you know, that'd work. So the idea is you can come and, and learn the client or the server and, uh, or the client and the server focus on the web, not the web, you know, really whatever portion of whatever portion of the API for strategy you're interested in. And if you're not a programmer and you just want to come and learn, you're like the manager of a team of developer developers or something, uh, you can come and learn about the topic without having to write code. And I think it'd be just as effective. So we'll see API first dot training. Awesome. That's it for me. Anything from you? No, I got nothing. Uh, you've got a lot. You went to a carnival this weekend. You've got to have tons of inspiration. Yeah, yeah. Carnival is a very generous term. <laughs> <laughs> so a fair is bigger than a carnival, right? Yes. So, so what's smaller than a carnival? Um, a, <laughs> a micro carnival. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's somewhere between, um, I don't know, like, like installation bit- art of <laughs> metal apparatuses <laughs> and in an event that you go to and happily ride rides. Is this one one of those deals where it's like um, the volunteer fire department put it on? They, like, they, they brought in some sort of carnival company yeah. out of, like, you know, Cheshire, Connecticut, and... Uh, I mean, it, it was a carnival. It had rides. We had fun. We played a lot of games. I, I lost miserably at the uh, throw the ball and knock the three, you know, cubes off of the table game. Yeah. And I feel dumb because I know that it's not, you know, very winnable. The bottom but, ones weigh like three and a half X the, <laughs> the weight of the ball. Uh, all I know is that I lost. <laughs> multiple times <laughs> how many funnel cakes were consumed uh, this was a funnel cake free carnival that's why i said it was a micro carnival oh my god they didn't even sell no. them no they had they had fried dough hmm. but no funnel cakes i know Big E, sean we're going any listeners in the new england area we will see you at the Big E. we should make that fall. a thing we've had enough people that no, listen that are from it is here. a thing it is a thing we'll pick oh. a day the Ruby on Rails podcast will now be going to the Big E this fall. Check your calendars now. Google the Big E Eastern States Exposition, calling all citizens of Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and Massachusetts. Yeah, we'll be there. We'll pick a day. That'll be we'll fun. Pick a day. We're going to get a tent and everything. All right. When do you think we're going to do our um, our Fancy Hands art project? We should do that in the next couple weeks. Yeah. No, we could do that like now. 
<laughs> and then we'll just subject our listeners to it. And then, oh, that's exactly... Okay, wait. I don't want to take any more time. This is going on long. What we'll do is we'll do this project, and then we'll, we'll, we'll you open a Twilio phone number where people can call and record messages to us about the art project, mm. what their experience was, and then we'll play the best ones in the podcast. Good thinking. You like that? Good thinking. On my feet. <laughs> All right, sir. It's been real. Thanks, everybody. Uh, I'm barely known on Twitter. Oh, you know what? We j- Okay, one more thing. We talked about we need to do better about promoting this podcast, and I tweeted that out, and all sorts of people had opinions, like many opinions shared about this question. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's do a better job right now at promoting the podcast. So right now we have like 7,500 people to listen. We'd like to double that by the end of the year. So if you listen to the podcast and God knows you do, you like it if you're at, you know, an hour or 20 minutes in and are still listening today, um, and know someone else that would like it, then share it. Uh, feel free to take the tweets that we have about, uh, this episode, share them if you want to. And do you think that whole rate and review on iTunes is, is effective actually? We'll oh. find out. <laughs> okay. So yeah, that's fine. If you want to say something nice on iTunes or give us a nice rating, then feel free. Um, or if you just want to chat us up on Twitter to create more chit chat about the, uh, the show, then do that. But we appreciate all help in, uh, getting the show out to more people to file, uh, to follow Kyle on Twitter at K Daigle. All right. And me, uh, at barely known. See you next week. Adios.